I want you to take your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2 to begin with. Let's stand as we open God's Word together this morning. We'll read these four verses, and uh, I'll share a couple of other passages with you this morning later as well. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, we thank you that so many of us have experienced your salvation. We've come to a knowledge of the truth, but we live in a day and in a time and in a land where your truth is becoming more and more rare. And I pray that today your truth will ring forth. Lord, if, if freedom is to ring, truth must first ring. Lord, it's who the Son sets free that is free indeed. So help us to proclaim that. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be our God this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Back during the Civil War, there was something known as the rebellion against the rebellion. The fact is, there was a group of folks that predominantly made up uh, the eastern portion of Tennessee. Dozens of counties uh, of East Tennesseans were members of, uh, predominantly run by what was uh, known at that time as the Whig Party. The party doesn't exist as such today that I'm aware of, but the Whig Party was strong back then, and the Whig Party, just uh, most of them, one of their leaders, in fact, put it into words, they thought that Southern Democrats, which had made up most of uh, those who had voted to secede from the Union, they thought that Southern Democrats were literally the Antichrist. And so in East Tennessee, even though they were in a state that was part of the South, and I realize I'm on dangerous ground bringing this up with some of you, that you know, your motto is kind of like, Lee surrendered, I didn't, and that sort of thing. And maybe you're ready for us to secede from the Union again someday. Um, but at this time, in East Tennessee, they did not feel, believe it or not, they did not feel like it was the right thing to do for Tennessee to pull away from the Union. And so they led what was known as the rebellion against the rebellion. They were rebels in the midst of rebels. They were not for what so many around them were standing for at that time. Why do I bring that up? To comment on the importance of uh, the Civil War? Well, not exactly. As a matter of fact, this group was so strong that Lincoln saw that for his second election, he would need one of them to help him to secure the presidency. So he asked that Andrew Johnson be his vice presidential running mate. Andrew Johnson, of course, became president after the death of Lincoln. So it was a, a strategic group of people. It was a strategic time, and they were involved in what was known as the rebellion against the rebellion. Now, the reason I bring that up is not to talk to you this morning about the Civil War, but to tell you that we might understand a little bit about how they felt during that time. 
because we understand that this world is sin-fallen and in rebellion against Almighty God, and we have seen that in our nation, and it's become more prevalent today than ever before, that our nation is part of this world that is sin-fallen and in rebellion against Almighty God, and there are some 50, 60 million Americans that claim to be born-again Bible-believing evangelical Christians, and I realize a lot larger percentage claim to be Christian, but as far as those who claim to be born-again Bible-believing Christians, you're you're talking about one-fifth or maybe one-sixth of the population of our nation. And we feel like we're in the midst of a rebellion against the rebellion, that we're having to rebel against those who are rebelling against God in our nation today. Now, there's two extremes when we come to this subject of Christians in politics. Two extremes. I want to mention those extremes, and then I want to talk about where I think the Bible would have us stand on this issue. As you might know, some would not preach a message like this or have even a service like this because they fear that the first extreme is that of nationalism as a religion. Nationalism as a religion. A religion view, it's a view of Americanism as one's religion. America as God's covenant people applying promises to Israel or promises that were to the church, applying those same promises to America as a nation. And so for these believers and for these preachers, every Sunday is a political hot button. Every Sunday is a Sunday to preach against the, the sins in Washington or to exalt America above all nations rather than seeing greater allegiance to the cross of Christ and to the kingdom of God. It's that we're, something, we're part of something that's much bigger than the United States of America, and that is the, the kingdom of God, that our first allegiance is to Christ and his cross, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there's one extreme of nationalism as a religion, equating America with the kingdom of God. If anything, God has allowed leaders to take positions in this nation that has reminded us, that have reminded us that we are not to be equated with the kingdom of God. But secondly, the other extreme is the the extreme of avoiding politics completely, not even talking about it in the church. Formerly, this was the uh, view among theological liberals who wanted to avoid any kind of controversy or any kind of confrontation whatsoever. And, and some of the conservative puritanical groups who said we got to be careful not to mix religion and politics. And now in the modern era, many of the preachers, younger preachers coming along much younger than me, uh, conservative evangelicals even are trying to avoid the extremes of A, so they go to the extreme of B, and they say, let's not even talk about it. We might hurt somebody's feelings if we have a patriotic service. And so let's steer away from that, refusing any expression of patriotism or any um, exercise of confronting what is going on in the political world. Now, I appreciate the reminders of this latter group, but I also think they overlook a few things. I think a few things may have been even left out of their education somewhere along the way. The point is the United States isn't special because God chose America to be his new covenant people. It's special because our founding fathers 
recognized that God blesses certain biblical principles, and so they tried to establish a nation on those principles. The Declaration of Independence cites 27 violations of Scripture and called our nation to throw off the tyranny of Great Britain. Our Constitution begins with the assumption that rights are granted by a Creator God. So the U.S. is not unique because God decided He would take our side. The United States of America is unique in those moments that we decide as a nation to take His side when He has already spoken. As a matter of fact, many of the charters of the original colonies and states have clauses and phrases about their existence being to glorify God and to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can't be ashamed of that heritage. Indeed, we should celebrate it because we're rapidly losing it. George Washington said, the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And so our founding fathers believed in one nation under God. God's covenant people are those who are part of the worldwide blood-bought church, not because they're a citizen of any particular nation. But God has not called his people to be silent while they're here in this land. He has not said, be behind the scenes in your communities and states and nations, but be influencers. Indeed, he calls us ambassadors. He's called us to be agents of change. Now, I can spend the rest of my time arguing our Christian heritage and foundation, but I believe most of you already agree with me on that. So what I want us to do is consider the fact that the United States is starting to look a lot more like Rome than Zion And so let's ask the question, how did the church interact with the government in the New Testament under the Roman Empire? I believe God has given us within the New Testament at least three ways to engage government both locally and nationally. Three ways God has called us to engage government both locally and nationally. And the first one is something we've already been doing this morning, and that is pray for the powers in leadership. Now let's not use the word prayer as a cliche, but let's take it seriously. It's time for the church to go to war and go to war on our knees in prayer for our nation. So Timothy receives this letter from Paul, and he's saying as a young preacher, boy, what's first? What's foremost? I'm ready to get after it. What's my job description? He says, therefore, I exert first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Pray for those in positions of leadership. Who does God call on to pray? Well, in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, God said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I, I will heal their land. I will forgive their sins. Listen, 
as a church, we need to not point our fingers at Washington and say it's time for y'all to pray or point our fingers at the schools and say, why did you ever take prayer out of public schools? And we need to go back and say, is God's house still a house of prayer? And do the people of God pray around their table and in their living rooms and in their bedrooms at night? Are they praying for this nation? God has called us to pray for those powers in leadership. The founding fathers prayed for agreement and they prayed for strength. Almost all of our presidents have asked for prayer. Congress begins their sessions with prayer. And while it frustrates me that prayer was taken out of schools, I realize that most schools across the nation, if we were to say, hey, let's just, let's just make it mandatory for all the schools to pray, if all the schools, hey, we're very blessed here in Madison County, Georgia, because we've got some good Christian teachers, members of this church and other Bible-believing churches who would be able to lead those prayers. But let's face it, if we made it mandatory for all schools to pray, well, in some parts of this country, they would be praying to Allah. In some parts of the country, uh, they would be praying to Krishna. And in most of the schools in California, they'd just pull out their crystals and meditate. We don't know what it would be like if we made prayer mandatory. But I'll tell you, if you're a student this morning, Nobody can stop you from praying in school. wonderful thing about being a student is anything that a student initiated is, and not a distraction is pretty much legal. You need to be leading prayer times at your school. You need to be leading prayer groups and Bible studies at your school. You need to be the influence in your school making a difference. Nobody can stop you as a Christian from being in communion with God. We can boldly, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, come, to, come into his throne room of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16 tells us we can find mercy and grace to help us in time of a need. And, and I know that these kids pray because whenever a hard test is given, they immediately say, God, help me pass this test. But begin to pray for the lost people around you. Pray for your teacher. Pray for your principals. Pray for those in leadership. Pray for these Men and women we recognized earlier who are serving us in this community, who are serving us overseas, and in so many other capacities. The people of God can pray, and nobody can stop us from praying. Let me ask you a question. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Do you spend more time in prayer for your government or more time complaining about your government? So that's a tough one, isn't it? Do we spend more time praying for our government or more time complaining about the government? The story was told that an ox was pulling a wagon, and the wagon, the, the wheels on the wagon were just old and creaky, and the wagon was squeaking and, and creaking and squeaking along, and the ox was just pulling that wagon along. And finally, the ox looked back at the wagon and said, Why are you making all that noise? Why all the, the squeaking and, and, and squeaking and squealing? And I'm doing all the work. Think about that for a moment. It might be true in our churches, and it's true when it comes to public service. Seems like one group of people's complaining, and the other group's doing the work. As Christians, we should go to work. We, we should begin to pray. We should, all those squeaky, squeaky wheels with prayer, the Spirit of God, do what God's called us to do and roll up our sleeves and go to work, which leads me to my second point this morning. Not only should we pray for the powers in leadership, we should participate in the processes of government. We should participate ourselves in the processes of government. As a matter of fact, that's the way this 
thing called the human race all got started. God created in the very beginning Adam and Eve. He gave Adam this dominion mandate. He said, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. God's idea from the very beginning was that man would govern the affairs of the world. God ordained the human governments from the very beginning. It was God's idea before he had a nation called Israel, before we had a nation called the United States. Government was God's idea. So why is it that the church, why is it that Christians think that we're not supposed to participate in these political processes? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 13. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. And I want to read from Romans chapter 13. It says, let every, and this is verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Again, Paul writing to Rome, Christians living inside the Roman Empire under a pagan anti-Christian government, and he's saying, God put these governments in place. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to the good works but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good." But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Why do we take a moment like this? Some say, well, it's just not the place of the church to recognize and honor our public servants. That's not what the Scripture just said. It says we pay taxes to give them a job. So some of you are like, well, every you know, Sunday we give tithes and offerings so that the uh, pastors and staff and their families can eat and that sort of thing. Listen, every public servant is put in place by taxpayers. We're participating in a process, and we're to give honor to whom honor is due. We're to recognize their service and honor them and participate in that process. That means that many of us should take up responsibilities in public service ourselves, and some of you have prayed about that, and and maybe God's calling you to run for a particular office to be salt and light, to participate in the process of government even says these government officials, they're like ministers in our lives. And so we're to support that and we're to honor that. I um, I was coming back from Athens with my daughter back this past winter. We had had a a snow. The snow had melted. I had to take her to the orthodontist. And we're coming back through uh, the big city of Hall, Georgia. And uh, you may not notice the speed limit signs there. You may not even notice there's a town there except for the traffic light. But I'm coming down Highway 72 and you might know that if you're coming from the Athens side, the speed limit drops a little bit earlier than coming from uh, the Colbert side of Hull. And so I'm trucking along at about 57, 58 miles per hour, past the sign, let off the gas. As a matter of fact, when I saw the state trooper, I was not even concerned a bit because I knew I was in the process of, uh, of dropping down to about 45 miles per hour. 
and he still pulled me over. I pull over to the side. My daughter's embarrassed. Can't believe Dad, the preacher, is getting pulled over by a state trooper. And, uh, I, and I'm still not worried about it. I think, well, he must have seen something he needs to warn me about or something because I'm sure I wasn't speeding. And uh, so he comes up and he, he says, uh, Sir, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, Oh, no, you're not about. You're not about to give me a ticket for driving 57 when I got to that sign on the other side of that hill and beginning the process to slow. There's no way you're going to give me it. Do you know who I am? Do you know that I have more years of education than you have? Do you know? All right, some of you are getting I didn't say any of that. (laughs) I rolled my window down, and I said to this guy who was probably 12, 13 years younger than me, I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Because he gave me a warning. Thank you, sir. I'll slow it down, sir. You may say, well, man, didn't it bother you? No, it bothered me more that if I had turned left, I'd have had to slow down to like eight miles an hour to go, you know, down Glen Carey. I don't know whose idea that was. But but I, I treated him with respect. He is God's minister in my life. I could have had an accident further down the road had he not stopped. I don't know what God was up to. But one day he may save my life. So we need to be careful how we respect and speak to those that are placed in positions of public authority and show our appreciation. Uh, They're doing a hard job. They need our support in that process. We need to participate in this process, support, pray for them. Mark 12, 17 says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar. So we recognize that responsibility as Christians. We're not to be anarchists. Even in secularized governments, just because the government's becoming more secular doesn't mean we need to go out and and build us a compound and start a militia somewhere. That may come later, but it's (laughs) not at this point. Put put these passages together in in Romans and and Mark, Genesis, and we're to select our leadership, we're to submit to them, and then we're to serve. Christians should lead the way when it comes to public service. Finally, I know that people need to hear more about what the church is for and less about what it's against sometimes, but we still have to say what God has said. And so my third point this morning is sometimes we need to protest the perversions of government. We need to very publicly and vocally protest the perversions of government. What do we do when the laws of man are in conflict with the laws of God? We protest those laws and do all we can to influence our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we can to influence our culture with the importance of biblical authority and God's mandates. One more time, I'm going to have you to turn with me in your Bibles. I think it's on the screen as well. But Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, we see that the apostles were arrested by the law enforcement by the religious law enforcement more than anything at this time. But the apostles were arrested for doing what God had called them to do, and that was preaching the gospel and ministering to the needs of the people. It says in verse 27, When they had brought them and set them before the council, the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine 
and intend to bring the man's blood on us, speaking of Christ. But Peter said, or Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The apostles said sometimes man's laws are going to conflict God's laws, and in those moments we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be the prince and the savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Yes, there's a leadership void in Washington today, but more importantly, there is a void of witnesses in the church today who will boldly speak what God has called the church to speak. Well, they, verse 40, agreed with him. And speaking of Gamaliel and the interaction of others, they called for the apostles. When they had called for them, they had beaten them. And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing. Listen, they didn't say, let's start a coup and overthrow the government. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is an example of civil disobedience. They didn't try to assassinate those in government leadership or in religious leadership in this equation, but they said, we're going to do what God has called us to do, and we will gladly suffer the consequences for saying what God has called us to say. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 4, 15 through 19, that if we're going to suffer persecution from the government, let it be for the right things and not for the wrong things. He says, don't, don't be in trouble with the government because of murder and because of slander and because of all these sins. If you're going to be in trouble with the government, let it be because you were preaching and teaching the gospel unapologetically. And see, there may come a day where even in this nation, we get in trouble with the laws of the land because we're heeding the laws of God. So when government leadership endorses abominable sins, the church is called to be salt and light and to speak the truth in love. We're to be like signs on the highway. Now we have a, a folks, first responders in EMS here that would love for everybody to obey the highway laws. But as a church, we should be like those road signs that say, listen, if you don't prepare to turn ahead, if you don't slow down, if you don't stop at this place, you're going to harm yourself and you're going to harm someone else. We should be like warning signs that if this world refuses to heed, they find themselves in great peril. For instance, we need to be reminding the world that life is precious and sacred. We need to remind our federal government that life is precious and sacred. And when we tolerate things like abortion on demand, we create a culture where we practice euthanasia. I remember preachers warning back in the 70s and in the 80s that if we continue to tolerate a, a, a abortion, we would next tolerate euthanasia. That's already happening. And then we would begin, listen to what I heard preachers saying when I was a teenager. 
that if we continue to tolerate abortion, next thing you know, we're going to have people killing their little children as a matter of convenience. Have you been watching the news lately? When a man can go on the internet and begin to Google search how he can leave his child in a car, that that car can be heated up and that child lose its life. We're living in a nation that's lost respect for the dignity of human life. And as Christians, we need to proclaim it starts at conception and ends at natural death. God says life is precious and sacred, and he will not bless a nation that does not recognize this. Give you another area where we need to be flashing a warning sign in our nation today. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19, and the depravity of Rome that's discussed in Romans chapter 1 are both related to a perversion that the local community had endorsed of marriage and sexuality. See, God had established that marriage and sexuality be one man, one woman for a lifetime, and they had perverted that it didn't matter if it was a man or a woman or a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It pretty much came to the point that they were saying, anything goes in this land. Now, I point out often that God is quick to judge Israel for their sins, but he also judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged Rome and gave them over to depravity for sexual immorality. So as a church, we need to get back to saying, The sexual relationship is between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage, and God's blessing is not on any other approach. Personally, I can't vote for a leader who would relate the preaching of this book on marriage to a hate crime. If a man will say that it's a hate crime to preach against what God calls sin, I can't vote for that individual. Much of the scripture contains, like I said, warnings against God's people. Not to be like the ungodly, but it also confronts, as I said, the other nations. Obadiah prophesied of the coming judgment of the, on the Edomites. Jonah and Nahum confronted the sins of Nineveh, of Assyria. Assyria who would eventually overtake the northern kingdom of Israel. Zephaniah prophesied that all nations could be blessed if they abide by the principles and precepts of God's law. So yes, the United States can be a God-blessed nation when we recognize the principles and precepts. It's not some mystical blessing that God says, well, because you say the Lord's Prayer before your ball games and sing God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch, I'm going to bless this land. No, he says, when you honor the principles and precepts of this book, then my blessing is on that book, it's on that word, it's on those principles, it's on those precepts. So yes, America can be blessed by God if God chooses to bless America. John the Baptist confronted the sexual sin of a king. And he was beheaded as a result of that. And the church needs to be prepared to be called evil and even be prosecuted for hate crimes for calling sin, sin. Now we need to speak the truth in love. We need to speak the truth with a tear in our eye. We need to rescue the perishing with a broken heart for the consequences of sin in their life. Christians, 
See, this is not a question of whether or not we should be involved in politics. It's how should we be involved. We should pray. We should participate. And we should protest when the time comes. We should understand that our greatest mission Listen, because we give honor to whom honor is due, because we're grateful, we give thanks to God, I can look at these American flags and I can say, you know what? America's the greatest land in the world. And I believe it is. Gerald Harris commented yesterday on Facebook, I believe it was, that the United States is the last frontier of freedom. There's nowhere else to go. If we don't fight for it here, if we don't pray for it and participate in it here and protest the atrocities of government. If we don't defend it here, there's, there's no more frontiers. There's nowhere else to go. So we've got to participate in this process and pray. But I can look at these flags and say, I have a loyalty to this nation and allegiance to this, this nation because of our godly heritage. But I also have to look at the Christian flag. And, it, and it's not some kind of symbol. It, it's, it's not an emblem that we bow to. It's not an idol. But it reminds me that a Savior went to a cross on my behalf. And I am a part of his eternal kingdom. And as a part of his eternal kingdom, as a child of the living God, as a citizen of the saints, I am called to be an ambassador for Christ on behalf of the kingdom of God to the United States of America and all other nations. And I want to be found faithful when he returns because he was faithful all the way to the cross for me. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?